0: Welcome to another edition of On The Line, a podcast that focuses on B.C.'s rich labour heritage. I'm your host, Rod Mickleborough. In this episode, we examine the dirty 30s and the god-awful forced labour relief camps the federal government set up to try and get unemployed single men out of their hair. We include a special focus on a little-known relief camp that was a mere hop, skip and jump from downtown Vancouver in North Vancouver. Our rousing theme song, Hold the Fort, was the song of resistance throughout this terrible time.
1: Yet we will not fear Help will come when tis needed Cheer, my comrades, cheer All the fort, fort,
0: The Depression. Ten lost years. The dirty thirties. No matter what you call it, the decade from the stock market crash of 1929 to the outbreak of World War II in the fall of 1939 was by far the worst economic time in the history of Canada. Almost overnight, the bottom fell out of North America's already precarious economy and millions of Canadians suddenly found themselves without work or prospects. By 1933, Canada's GDP had fallen 42%. Close to a third of the country's workforce, through no fault of their own, was unemployed. Yet governments, obsessed with balancing their budgets, refused to provide any relief to single unemployed men. They were left to survive on odd jobs, charity, bread lines, and soup kitchens. Vancouver was the end of the line for waves of boxcar riders looking for work. And with its relatively mild climate, the city was soon the unemployed capital of Canada. They were angry, frustrated, and desperate eager to be organized and fight for relief, work and wages, and dignity. Mostly, they were ignored by mainstream unions, who focused on their own members. Into the breach strode the Communist Party of Canada, for whom the Depression was a clear sign of the evils and failings of capitalism. In 1930, the CP established the Workers' Unity League, a militant union organization that included the unemployed. They were soon leading large protests and marches to demand better treatment of those unable to find work. As numbers grew, authorities became nervous. They worried that the Reds were stirring up Vancouver's restless throngs of unemployed to foment revolution.
1: They used to tell me I was building a dream and so I followed the mob. When there was earth to plow or guns to bear, I was always there, right on the job. They used to tell me I was building a dream with peace and glory ahead. Why should I be standing in line just waiting for bread? Once I built a railroad, made it run, Made it race against time. Once I built a railroad, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime?
2: Once I built a tower.
0: To, the- to get them off the streets and away from the lure of the Workers' Unity League, the federal government established a network of work camps. Most were in the BC interior, far from the bright lights of Vancouver. Only by going to one of these camps could single unemployed men receive any kind of assistance. They were provided with bare-bones accommodation, skimpy meals, and meager compensation for six days of hard labor. By 1935, their pay was down to just 20 cents a day. A pittance for all the work they did, building roads, airports, and other projects. In truth, they were little more than slave camps. With workers crammed together under these dreadful conditions, the camps proved perfect organizing territory for the Workers' Unity League. The League's Relief Camp Workers' Union soon had a foothold in camps all over the province. Their leader was the legendary driven communist Arthur Slim Evans. Over the years, his fierce commitment to working-class struggle had led to numerous jailings, a kidnapping, and a gunshot wound during a minor strike in Colorado that left him with a permanent limp. Jean Shields, Slim Evans' daughter, was interviewed by Sarah Diamond sometime around 1980. Here, she talks about her upbringing and memories of the Depression.
2: I was born in Vancouver in 1927. My, probably my earliest recollections are of being evicted. Uh, I was seven years old, going to school, and my father was in jail. Uh, He had been convicted of Section 98 of the Criminal Code, which I'm sure you know was brought in during the 1919 Winnipeg General Strike to get good trade unionists out of the way. Uh, We had so many unemployed with us, usually anywhere from 30 to 40, stayed at our home day and night, uh, fed by neighbors, by donations. And uh, it it was, believe it or not, a good time. Uh, Wonderful people, young men, really. The Irish, I think, stole my heart to to this day. Whenever I hear Kevin Barry, I go back to, to remembering them. Uh, As for the rest, I I certainly remember going to my father's trial. I remember going to see him in jail. (sighs) My father was a trade unionist. His history of being a trade unionist uh, went long before I was born. He had been a wobbly. He had been a member of the OBU, one big union. And at this particular time, he was a journeyman carpenter, but also... The Workers Unity League organized there for British Columbia. They organized the unemployed and the employed. There was no money, and how could you hold a meeting, try and discuss conditions, when you couldn't rent a hall? And our parks were just not allowed to to people. They, I think, they knew that they had a an upcoming big problem with unemployed and they wanted them off the streets which the relief camps did for them later on there would be socials they would raise money there would be delegations to relief offices i know my earliest recollections are going with my dad a gunny sack you were given Food, not your choice, but their choice. And I remember one particular time my father looked in that bag and there was rotten cabbage and he fired it back. People would work very hard uh, to get away from that. It, it It wasn't a very nice thing to have to go into a store with script either, which is what relief was in those days. When you went to pay your bill, everyone knew you were on relief and uh, in Vancouver in those days 60,000 households were on relief. I remember once we got some clothing and they looked wonderful they were brand new until we got to look at them and they had deliberately taken scissors and made a cut in each one so that we wouldn't really have anything new it would
0: have to be mended. Jean Shields then goes on to talk about the diabolical relief camps
2: when they first started I think was in around 30, but in 32 they were taken over by the National Defense League and, and that brought in a completely stronger system where they, at some camps, even had them marching as soldiers. They had guns in the Point Grey one. They had taken a lot of the ex-servicemen who had come from the Second World the First World War, and they wanted them uh, to do the marching. They wanted control of them in camps because the men were complaining about the work, about the food, about the isolation, about the lack of any kind of medical uh, care for them, and um, I suppose they thought those that they were training to be soldiers or Keeping up their training might keep the younger ones down and the more organized ones down from raising heck in the camps. They worked in very isolated areas, airstrips. strips. Um, some of the work was really useless. Um, it was just to keep them busy. Most of it was pick and shovel type of work. Uh, no medical care, no compensation for injuries, no radios, no, no books. They did nothing f- for the boys as far as their, their education in life. They, they were just sick, sick places to put anybody with no
0: hope. Not all relief camps were located in the wilderness far from Vancouver. Few know there were also relief camps in Point Grey, White Rock, and North Vancouver. Unlike the interior camps, where make-work projects were the order of the day, these camps were built for military purposes. Thanks to research some years ago by Donna Sakuda, we now know a lot more about the relief camp located in North Vancouver on what was the military's Blair Rifle Range. Donna talked about her findings with on-the-line researcher Patricia Weir. She happened to live close to the former Rifle Range and got curious.
3: It's a wooded area uh, in our neighborhood. We always called it the Rifle Range. And uh, I didn't know anything about its history beyond that. Um, And it just so happened that um, someone in our local neighborhood had written a question on a, a neighborhood newsletter saying, how come we can't? build a trail between our neighborhood and the next one over through that rifle range what's the deal with that Um, and I thought well that's a good question and it just happened to be at a point in my life when I had some time on my hands I thought well I'm just gonna do a little checking because I like stories like that so I started to look around and reading as much information as I could glean And I went to a book and it mentioned in in just a brief mention in a paragraph about uh, an unemployed camp during the Depression. And then my alarm bells went off because I thought, really? I didn't know that. I knew it was a rifle range, but what did it have to do with with, uh, unemployed camps in the Depression, which is something I knew a little bit about from from university days. Um, So before too long, I had dived in with both feet and uh, began to discover that it was more than just an unemployed camp. It was one of the very notorious Department of National Defence relief camps during the 1930s. It was called the Blair Rifle Range, named after a military fellow by the name of Blair. Uh, It was built in the 1920s by the military. And uh, when they were casting around for projects that they could put unemployed people to work at, uh, the military um, came up with a number of projects. Uh, there were a total of 162 projects across Canada run by the military during the Depression for unemployed, single unemployed men. 73 of those were in British Columbia, uh, and only four of those were actually tasked with building rifle ranges for the military. Uh, so the, mil- the the rifle range was already there. But what they decided to do at Blair was to expand it, to make it bigger um, and and do clearing and building and um, uh, flattening of the land to to make it a, a, a better asset for the military. Yeah. Were the conditions a bit better at those ones? Um, No, the uh, national defense camps were considered slave camps by the people who lived there. Under the terms of their uh, operation, the men were provided with bunkhouse accommodation, military clothing, military rations, and medical and dental care. Uh, They were given army garments uh, that were called near the point of condemnation. That had been in storage since 1918 Uh, they were uh, assigned to work for eight hours a day uh, five and a half days a week and for that they were given an allowance of 20 cents a day so when the history was told of the camps we were always told that they were located in uh, places far away from the public so that they weren't in the eye of the public or they weren't uh, influenced by some of the radical ideas that were around. So I was very surprised to learn that this one in North Vancouver existed because that would have been probably the, one of the closest to the Vancouver
0: population at the time. So that, that's surprising. Meanwhile, events were moving quickly in the relief camps that were out of town. As anger grew over the slave camp conditions and military-style rule, Slim Evans and the Relief Camp Workers' Union declared a strike. Their rallying cry was work and wages. By rail, by road, and by foot, 1,500 relief camp workers poured into Vancouver. It wasn't easy to feed, house, and maintain order for such a rootless group, but the communist-led union was equal to the task. They raised money with regular tag days and what became known as tin canning, Men wearing sashes reading When Do We Eat? worked four-hour shifts at busy street corners, holding out tin cans for cash donations. The public was supportive. One Saturday, they raised $5,500. Slim Evans, who had been up for 48 hours organizing the Blitz, called in police to safeguard the cash until the banks opened on Monday. Cheekily, Evans told them it was Moscow Gold. That spring, downtown streets were regularly overrun by hunger marches, demonstrations, large public rallies, and boisterous snake dances. That year's May Day parade was the biggest ever. And on Mother's Day, the left-wing Mother's Council led a huge march to Stanley Park to show support for our boys. There, they formed a giant heart around the young relief camp strikers. That evening, mothers across the city, took them in for a good meal. One event planner observed that this was, quote, something of real value instead of the usual bourgeois maudlin. After six weeks, however, despite all this public support, the strike was getting nowhere. On May 18th, Evans upped the ante. The strikers' four divisions marched off as usual. Two headed to local department stores. One to the ferry depot for West Vancouver and one to Maine and Hastings. That's the site of the Carnegie Center today. But then it was the city library. All of a sudden, in they went, rushing up the stairs to the archive section on the third floor and barricading themselves against eviction. A large crowd of supporters gathered outside. The boys inside lowered baskets to those below who filled them up with food and drink and some medicine for those who ate a little too much jubilant snake dancers, took over Hastings Street, accompanied by the Strikers' rallying song. We need- Vancouver's hard-nosed Mayor Jerry McGear, already notorious for his ludicrous reading of the Riot Act to a large crowd of peaceful protesters at Victory Square, gave in to the strikers' demands for the first time. The city agreed to feed and house the strikers, all 1,500 of them. Even if it was only for the weekend, it was something. But the victory over Jerry McGear was short-lived. As morale and number of strikers began to thin, along with public donations, it was clear that something more had to be done. At a mass strategy meeting, someone suggested taking the protests directly to Ottawa. The strikers roared their approval. Slim Evans quickly endorsed the plan. They had hit the strategic motherload. A few nights later, on June 3, 1935, in the dark of the Vancouver rail yards, hundreds of strikers boarded boxcars and headed off into the night bound for Ottawa. It was the beginning of the legendary On to Ottawa trek, an event so audacious and extraordinary it has come to symbolize the depression. No one was happier to see the boxcars pull out than Jerry McGeer. All those single unemployed communists were now someone else's problem. So what happened at the nearby Blair rifle range and the relief camp workers there who were directly under the thumb of the Canadian military? Did they take part in the strike too? Donna Sakuta was determined to find out. She sought out the military files relating to the relief camps that are housed with Library and Archives Canada. Rather than go all the way to Ottawa, she paid for them to be digitized. And here's what she found. Came, the question that came
3: to my mind was, did the people at the Blair Rifle Range participate in the relief camp strikes? And while I couldn't find any reference to them in any of the news reportings at the time, as I went through the monthly reports, it became very clear that yes, indeed they did. Um, the, the reports were that the, uh, the strength of the camp, which meant the number of people living there had declined to the extent that they couldn't perform the work that the military wanted them to do during those months from in the spring of
0: 1935. Thanks to Donna's research, the relief camp at the Blair Rifle Range is now memorialized by a historical plaque. It was one of the first to be put in place as part of the Labour Heritage Centre's province-wide plaque project to commemorate significant events of B.C. labour history. One person we know who did take part in both the strike and the On to Ottawa trek was Red Walsh. He was interviewed many years ago by Howie Smith. I think it's fitting to leave the last word to Red Walsh who was not only in the forefront of the Relief Camp Workers Union like many, he went on to fight in the Spanish Civil War and survived. But that's a story for another day. I
1: don't want your millions, mister I don't want your diamond ring All I want You worked eight hours a day for 20 cents, 20 cents a day. And the food were pretty bad, it wasn't very good. And the camps were controlled by the army, federal government.
3: You said you were working eight hours a day in the camp for 20 cents a day.
1: What kind of work were you doing? Road work. This is how a lot of the roads in BC got built. The whole Princeton Highway was built by slave labor. This nine pound hammer is a little too heavy but for my size but for my size so roll on buddy don't roll so slow how can i roll when the wheels don't go relief camp workers union we had a union and uh we organized a general strike of all camps in B.C. in the spring of 35, in April. Now, now what led up to that organizing? Well, well we wanted the wages. Uh, that was the big factor in the camps. And uh, everybody was passing the buck. The city government, the provincial government, they had no control over the camps, so we can't do anything. You'll have to see the federal government about it. Couldn't contact the federal government, so we organized a trek to Ottawa.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this look back at these young, unemployed, but valiant British Columbians, tossed on the scrap heap by society who said no more to working as a slave for 20 cents a day. Thanks to Donna Secuda, now Executive Director of the B.C. Labour Heritage Centre, for her research. To Sarah Diamond and Howie Smith for their interviews, and to Patricia Weir and Bailey Garden of the podcast crew who helped put this all together. I'm your host, Rod Mickleborough. We'll see you next time on the line.